privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, this church really does mean quite a bit to me. Think of the grace of God in my life through this church. It was from this pulpit that I first heard the gospel savingly. And by the grace of God, I get to stand in this pulpit. I was baptized uh, here in this church. I was part of the internship. And so I got my uh, feet wet in learning how to teach and preach. And remember taking Pastor Pat's classes. And I met the most beautiful among women. She was right back there. Sorry, guys. You're too late. I snatched her up. It was uh, 12 years ago that we were right up here and uh, we got married. In fact, it was Pastor Pat who invited her to come to this church. I'm really glad he did that. And so we have been married for 12 years. We have three beautiful children. So I'm really thankful for this church, thankful for the grace of God. I'm thankful to be here this morning to open up the Word of God with you. Let's now turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, our text this morning is verses 1 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Brothers and sisters, this is God's very word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also... We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. This concludes the reading of God's word. Let's bow before him now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help. We ask for the help of your spirit. We ask for the illumination of this text that we may understand it, that it may be spiritually applied to us for the benefit and good of our souls. We ask for clarity. We ask for strength to hear your word, to worship you by hearing your word. We ask that you would bless your people this morning. Bless your people for Christ's sake. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we can think of many distinguishable honors that are given among men. Think of medals given to those in the military and police force for sacrificial service. There are certain recognitions and honors given to individuals for outstanding achievements in the community, in education, in sports, in arts. And then there are certain honorable positions, such as a chief, chief of police maybe, an assistant chief, a CEO employer student of the month. 
And then being a father or a mother or a grandparent is a wonderful honor and blessing according to God's word. But really the highest value and honor that anyone can have is not one that was achieved, but one that was freely given as a gift. And that is being a son of God. Nothing in all the universe could ever compare to being called one of God's sons. But sadly, these Galatians were forgetting that. And these Galatians were not acting as sons, but they were acting as slaves. And they were coming back under the bondage of the law. But beloved, this is not an issue that's confined to the Galatians in the first century. This is a temptation that every believer faces in every age, and hence why God gave us the book of Galatians. You know, anytime we try to measure up by our own efforts to feel righteous and acceptable to God, or when we withdraw from God because we fell into sin, or we're critical of others, or we feel as though the law of God is a heavy burden, or we do not see God as our loving Father who has compassion on us and who pities us as His children. Then these are indicator lights on the dashboard that we have succumbed to being under the bondage of the law again. And so we need reminders. And today what I want us to look at are three truths to always remember so that we do not fall back under the bondage of the law. Three truths to always remember so that we don't find ourselves back under the law. And they are from what we've been delivered, how we've been delivered, and to what we were delivered. So from what, how, and to We have been delivered. So first, from what were we delivered? Look at verses 1 and 2 again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, since we're jumping in the middle of this letter, we need to see what Paul has been saying very briefly up to this point. Paul has just got done talking about how the Mosaic Covenant, that is the Old Covenant, was a pedagogue. That is a guardian, as the ESV translates it. In that day, this was someone who is commissioned to watch a child guard and watch over a minor who was the heir who would receive the family's inheritance, the pedagogue would be responsible for instructing and disciplining the child, basically getting him ready for adulthood, ready to receive the inheritance. But while this son has the right to the inheritance, he does not yet have possession of it. And so during this time, He is instead treated as a slave in that he's not given ownership over 
the family inheritance. He's under discipline. He's told what to do. And so Paul says in verse 2 that he is under guardians and managers until the time set by his father for him to receive that inheritance. Well, Paul uses this as as an analogy to explain the way it was during the old covenant, the people of God under the old covenant. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul compares God's people under the old covenant to children who are under a pedagogue, who have not grown up yet, who have not received the inheritance from God the Father. But notice that Paul also includes the Gentiles in this. He says, when we were children and enslaved... So this is referring to not where the individual Christian is, but where the whole people of God were collectively on that redemptive historic timeline. Back in the Old Covenant, Paul said in the previous passage in chapter 3 that this period was called before Christ or before the coming of faith. Prior to the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ coming and accomplishing redemption, that is the period of which Paul speaks here. Prior to the coming of Christ, in that period of redemptive history, the collective people of God are referred to as children because of where they were on that redemptive historic timeline. God is still using types and shadows, animal sacrifices, They have to come through a priest to approach God using the the Levitical priestly system of the Old Covenant. But what God was illustrating with the Old Covenant, with all its various ceremonial and sacrificial laws, was that the law still needed to be fulfilled. Righteousness needed to be achieved through the works principle of do this and live before the inheritance of eternal life. Having full access to God would be secured. And hence, there's a tabernacle, there's a temple. And the people of God need to keep their distance. And they need animal sacrifices. That's indicating this has not yet been fulfilled, but it needs to be fulfilled. But not by the principle of do this and live. Back in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, Paul laid out two principles, two ways to heaven. The first is do this and live. That is, do the law, keep the law, and then you will get eternal life. That was the first principle. In other words, be perfect if you want to get to heaven. And you had to be perfect. It wasn't be mostly good. Be better than your neighbor. Get within the ballpark. But rather, he says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and do them. You do it all or it's over. And the problem is nobody's done it. Nobody's perfect. And we say, yeah, well, nobody's perfect. Uh, God certainly doesn't expect perfection. Yes, he does if you want to get to heaven. 
That's what Paul's saying there in Galatians 3. And then once you've blown it, that's it. It's kind of like bowling. You want to get a perfect score in bowling? You miss a pin in the seventh frame? Guess what? You're not getting a perfect score. And it's not that you need to get a, a 299 or 295. God says, roll a 300 if you want to get into heaven. But the problem is we're not even in the lane. We're, we're throwing the ball backwards towards the front desk. So that's not a principle we want to live by. Do this and live. Be perfect. But the other principle that the Apostle Paul lays out there in Galatians 3 is hear the gospel with faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And that is simply hear the good news. Hear the gospel and believe and you will have eternal life and that's it. Believe the good news that Christ has come. That Christ obeyed the law for you. That Christ was crucified for you. That Christ took your place on the cross and bore all the wrath that was reserved for you. And you believe it and that's it and you will live. Those are the only two principles that the Apostle Paul lays out. And these are mutually exclusive. And what Paul has been arguing is that God put the old covenant in place in order to show the world that we as fallen sinners can't do it. If you want to live by the principle, do this and live, look at what happened with Israel. How did they do? Not very well. And we dare not look at that and say, well, we can do better. No, it's to show us the greatness of our sin and misery and the need for Christ, the need to believe on him. Now, the way Paul puts this works principle here in Galatians 4.3 is to say, including these Gentiles, that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And what Paul is saying here is that this is the works principle. Do this and live. If you want eternal life, be righteous perfectly and live. That is what Paul is referring to by the elementary principles of the world. And to see this, there's two components that we need to consider here. First is the Greek word that the ESV translates as elementary. Some of your translations may have elemental or elements. The word elementary refers to the first stages of something. It comes from the concept of the basic elements of the earth. Earth, air, fire, water. Just as these elements are the very basics of the earth, so elementary refers to the very basics of something. And this is how the word's used in Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, it says there, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. So there's that same Greek word. Basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So the same Greek word for elementary in Galatians 4.3 is used in Hebrews 5.12 to refer to the basic principles of something. And in Galatians 4.3, Paul is using this to refer to the old covenant. And we even see that if we were to keep reading in verses 9b through 10 which of chapter 4, which says, How can you turn back again 
to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to once be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. So Paul is saying to go back under the old covenant, to go back under these things, to go back under the law is to return back to the elementary principles of the world. So he has the old covenant in mind. However, there is another component to this. It's not just the elementary principles, but the elementary principles of the world, of the world. So Paul doesn't just tie these legal requirements, this works principle to being a Jew under the Mosaic covenant, but rather he includes the whole world in this. And hence why he says to these Gentile Galatians, we were under this, all of us. How can Paul include the Gentiles, the world under this works principle? Well, it goes back to that covenant that God made with Adam, a covenant of works. The covenant given to Adam was that Adam had to obtain an inheritance. That inheritance was eternal life, a life in the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy secured in his presence as symbolized by the tree of life. And in order to get this inheritance, he had to work. He had to do. He had to do this and live, be perfectly righteous even under a test. Hence, Satan comes in the garden under the sovereign provision of God to test Adam. This is the work's principle. Do this and live. Obey perfectly and you will receive eternal life. So the work's principle, being under the law, that is needing to measure up and be righteous before God to gain the inheritance of being with God forever and avoid being cursed, goes all the way back to creation, the beginning of the world. This is the initial primitive stage at the beginning of creation. It's elementary, basic stage prior to this works principle being fulfilled and man being bestowed with life eternal where he is beyond the possibility now of becoming corrupt and dying. And Adam was our representative He represented the whole human race. And so when he fell into sin, we fell into sin. His actions were counted as ours. And so we now stand condemned and still in need of this works principle to be fulfilled. And God illustrated this in the old covenant. The covenant he made with Israel where he said, do this and live. Leviticus 18.5, I gave them laws by which if a man does it, he shall live by them. Do this and live, Israel. Now with Adam, his reward was eternal. With Israel, their reward was earthly. Long life in the land. But it was a type. It was a shadow of that greater life in heaven, eternal life. But the reason God did this is not because he said, Hey, I'll give you a second chance. I think you can do it this time. Or, well, here's a lesser reward for you. Rather, he did it, as Paul said in the previous chapter, to show us our need for Christ, 
to show us that we as fallen sinners can't do it. But someone has to do it. The law must be fulfilled in order for eternal life to be gained, in order for the inheritance to be gained. Somebody has to do this in order to live. And in that old covenant system, God was showing you need a substitute to do it. And this brings us to the second truth to always remember in order to not fall back under the bondage of the law. So we've seen from what we were delivered, this works principle, how were we delivered? Verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So just as the earthly father had appointed a time for his son to receive the inheritance, so did our heavenly father. In the fullness of time, at the time appointed by God our father, he sends forth his son. He sends his eternal son into the world. His eternal son who is God himself, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, but born of a woman. Like us in all things, except for sin. In a woman's womb for nine months, born the same way we are, a true man. But he was also born under the law. He was put in subjection to the elementary principles of the world. The works principle was laid on him. He came under the law for us in order to fulfill it, in order to fulfill all righteousness. And he fulfilled all righteousness for us. He obeyed all that was written in the book of the law and did them for us. He fulfilled the works principle of do this. And live. And this included coming under the penal curse of the law. That if you don't do it, you will surely die. And so Christ stood in our place condemned for all our law breaking. And then stood in our place as our law keeper. He has fulfilled it all for us. And his resurrection from the dead is proof that he fulfilled do this. Because he was raised from the dead and lives forevermore. He has done it for us. He has secured the inheritance of eternal life for us. He bore the burden of fulfilling that works principle for us by doing it. And so brothers and sisters, this is why we are not under the law as a covenant of works of do this and live. Christ bore that burden for us and has fulfilled it for us so that it never comes upon us who believe. But dear believer, do you still live under the law? Do you feel a heavy weight from needing to be righteous because judgment day is coming? Are you trying to obey in order to measure up for that day 
Have I done enough to stand before God? You may be wondering. Do you feel anxious all the time for some reason? As if you have a big test coming up. A big judgment day test. When I was in seminary, our final exam made us feel anxious. It was 50% of our grade. And there's a lot of anxiety building up to that. Have I studied enough? Have I done enough to pass the test? There was a lot that weighed on that. Because if I failed, I would have to wait another year before I would retake it, before I'd have to retake the class. And that would mean I would have to walk in to our closet of an apartment with a baby, scraping by, look at my wife in the eye and say, guess what, honey? We have another year of this. (laughs) That's a lot of pressure. And so there was a lot of anxiety and pressure because I had to perform well enough to pass. It was a covenant of works. Do this and pass. But believer, is this the way you feel for judgment day? Judgment day is coming. I will have to stand before God. Will I have done enough to pass? That brings a great level of anxiety from this pressure to perform, this pressure to measure up with enough righteousness of your own on judgment day. And this is actually why probably a lot of people experience anxiety, even though they may not be able to trace its source. Well, we're made in the image of God and we have a conscience and God has laid eternity on the hearts of men. Everyone knows this day is coming. And sometimes it comes out as feeling like you have something you need to prove. I need to be somebody. I Wanting recognition, being insecure or sensitive about how others view you and how they will approve of you. But believer, do you realize that Christ took your judgment for you? Christ was born under the law for you, meaning the pressure to measure up to the righteous standard that God has laid on man. Christ passed for you. The pressure of having to pass the test with a perfect score Christ accomplished. He took that test for you. And you get credit for his perfect score through faith. And the burden of dealing with our guilt was placed on Christ who took care of our guilt and was punished in full for us. Do you sometimes feel the responsibility to make up for your sin? You you fall into sin, you blow it. And the first thought you have is, man, I need to figure out a way to do better. I need to get my act together so that I can regain my righteous standing before God and fix it. I can't go to him in prayer right now. He's not too happy with me. I'll withdraw and I'll wait until I have a better period of my own obedience before I have confidence to come before him again. My confidence is based on my own obedience. I'll spend longer times in devotion. I'll spend longer times in prayer. 
rather than going to him and trusting him to take care of my guilt and shame and wash away all my filth. I'll bear that responsibility. I'll carry it. I'll just try harder and hope to do better. And then after a period of doing better, of improving my own righteousness, then I can stand before God with confidence. I can approach him again. Give me the five principles I need to do to better my own righteousness. Help me out here. Or it's hopeless. My only comfort is my idols. More manageable gods to give me comfort and peace and fulfillment. Or every cent that God is so demanding. How can I ever be good enough? Or then I just try to convince myself that I am to give me comfort. Yeah, I think I'm righteous enough. I justify myself. But believer, Christ has already dealt with your guilt in full. He dealt with it being born under the law, becoming a curse for us. Christ already faced the judgment you deserve while on the cross, bearing your load, bearing all your shame and the wrath of God in your place. When you look at the cross, you are looking at your final judgment. God's settling accounts. God is now satisfied with you. There's nothing left to settle. Your sins have been paid for in full. And so judgment day for believers will be a day of vindication an open and public declaration that we are righteous and accepted by God and therefore welcomed into his eternal kingdom. You have nothing to prove. Christ did it all for you. And Paul says that Christ redeemed us from under the law, that he was born under the law in order to redeem us from being under the law, the law which we broke. Redemption in the first century was in the context of the slave market. One reason a person would enter into slavery is because he would have a debt that he could not pay. And so he had to work his way to pay his debt. But there is another option. And that is somebody who pay that debt for them to redeem them so that they would not have to pay their debt by their works. And this is what Christ has done. Philippians 2 says Christ became the slave. Christ said, I will be the slave. I will be the slave instead of them so that they may go free. I will pay their debt in full. I will be crushed in their place so that their debt they bear no more. So that we would receive the eternal inheritance as a free gift paid for by Christ in full. And this brings us to the third and final truth to always remember so that we do not fall back into the bondage of the law. So we saw first from what we were delivered. We were delivered from the elementary principles of the world, the works principle. How we were delivered from that, Christ came under the law for us. He came under that works principle and fulfilled it all for us. And so now what? To what we were delivered? Verses 6 through 7. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So because we are no longer slaves, having been redeemed by Christ, no longer needing to fulfill the works principle of do this and live or to pay off our debts, because we are adopted sons, we are heirs. That means we get the inheritance of eternal life. How it worked in the ancient Near East, so the son was the heir and got the inheritance. Well, we who are sons of God, which is every believer, whether male or female, Jew or Gentile, are heirs and get the inheritance from him. And this inheritance is God himself. A life spent with God in his presence where there is fullness of joy. We inherit a kingdom that has no end, reigning with Christ, co-heirs with him in the new heavens and the new earth in that heavenly Jerusalem. And the down payment or promise of this inheritance is having God now. If God is our inheritance, well, we have God now by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, God sending forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. And it is the spirit who applies our redemption, changes our hearts, and who causes us to cry out from within, Abba, Father. This term of endearment and closeness that comes from the Hebrew word. God's spirit causes us to recognize him as our father, God's Spirit has caused us to no longer see God as a hard taskmaster who is against us, who is angry at us, who is a distant despot. This is the way, if you remember the wicked servant in the parable, who did nothing with his talent. That's the way he saw God. He saw his masters a hard man. Therefore, he was afraid and didn't serve him. The way he viewed God played into how he lived. He saw him as a hard man, a hard master, living in fear, living in this slavish fear. But rather than seeing God as withholding from us until we get our act together or have enough good works before he will receive us, where we need to try to appease him with our good behavior, God's Spirit has caused us to see that God has freely, generously, and willingly, gladly has sent forth His Son, not sparing His own Son, to take our place so that we would receive the inheritance as a free gift. He is a Father who pities us, who has compassion on us, who loves us no matter What happens no matter what we do? We see that he is not against us, but he is for us and that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And even pleased to discipline us because of his love. But this is something we need to constantly be reminded of as evidenced by the Galatians falling back under the law. As John Owen says, 
Christians walk oftentimes with exceedingly troubled hearts concerning the thoughts of the Father towards them. They are well persuaded of the Lord Jesus Christ and his goodwill, but the difficulty lies in their acceptance with the Father. What is his heart towards them? Many dark and disturbing thoughts are apt to arise here. Few can carry up their hearts and minds as to rest their souls in the love of the Father. They live below it in the troublesome region of fears, storms, and clouds. But this is the will of God, that he may always be eyed as kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable towards us. But this isn't our default view of God, is it? Our default view is he's a hard man, a cold judge. I need to do better if I want his favor. But does this result in drawing near to God and loving him? It certainly doesn't. It causes us to withdraw in slavish fear and sin. As John Owen goes on to say, so long as the father is looked upon as not acting in love to us, It breeds in the soul dread and withdrawal from God. But when he who is father is considered as a father, acting love on the soul, this raises our souls to love him again, leading to obedience. Brothers and sisters, God has not given us a spirit leading us to slavery of fear but he has given us the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. May this be our constant meditation and remembrance that we who have trusted Christ are no longer slaves, but we who believe are his treasured and cherished sons. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we're so grateful that you, the fullness of your love, has sent forth your Son to satisfy that works principle and to satisfy judgment on our behalf. And that you have sent your Spirit to dwell in our hearts, causing us then to cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you and we thank you for this wonderful redemption. And we ask that as we believe this, help our unbelief, that as a result we will draw near to you. And that from viewing you as a kind and gracious master, that this will lead us into greater love towards you and love towards one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.